You're listening to Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My. I'm Kyle Nanavati. And I'm Joe Records. On today's episode, we are discussing the hidden costs of anti-kickback statute claims that are brought under the False Claims Act for public companies. We've touched on the FCA in this space before, largely because healthcare companies are some of the most heavily impacted by the False Claims Act. Right. And this is a topic of an article that was published in Law 360 and written by Rebecca Baskin, who is our guest for this episode. She found that companies lost a staggering 25% of their value over the public lifespan of an FCA case based on the anti-kickback statute. And on this episode, we will talk with Rebecca about the methodology, the findings, and some of the key takeaways. So let's start, Rebecca, with how did you kind of identify this topic and select it to write about? So inspiration for this came when I was chatting with some attorneys in the healthcare group and in the white collar group at Kroll about a current case that I have. I'm representing a client who's part of a company that's being investigated under the False Claims Act and anti-kickback statute. And I was remarking while we were meeting and talking about those sorts of investigations and what was happening in those sorts of cases. Every time I met with this client, there would be a new type of investigation or new sort of litigation that was popping up against the company. There were derivative actions. There were whistleblower cases. There were all sorts of cases that started either because of the public announcement of the False Claims Act investigation or because of the financial impact that that investigation was having. And this is a trend that we see that when False Claims Act cases or investigations are announced, they sort of trigger a bunch of other cases by individuals in the company and shareholders that are responding to the downturn in the company's good fortune. So I think that talking about this with some of the attorneys inspired the article. And it's important for listeners and for our clients because in False Claims Act or anti-kickback statute cases, oftentimes, you know, those two go hand in hand. They can be really existential for any company, whether it's a small company or a large publicly traded healthcare company. It's existential. It's huge because of the damages, the penalties, but also because of other ramifications that stem from the investigation and from the resolution. But to my knowledge, no one had really tried to quantify how much the ancillary costs of being the subject of a False Claim Act or anti-kickback statute investigation actually cost a company. And so that's what inspired this article. So we already said that your article found that companies subject to an AKS and FCA investigation lost about 25% of their value. But can you talk to us a little bit about your methodology and how you got there? Absolutely. So what I did was looked at the share price in the two years preceding a public disclosure event and then looked at what happened to the share price between the disclosure event and the resolution of the case. And then again, what happened to the share price after resolution? And the reason why I'm saying disclosure event is because, as your listeners know, False Claims Act investigations and anti-kickback statute investigations are announced in different ways and at different times in the investigations. Oftentimes, they're filed under seal, 
And the public might only learn of the investigation through disclosures that the company makes, through earnings disclosures, for example. There could be a leak in the press. There could be shareholder derivative suits that indicate that there is an ongoing investigation or litigation from other parties. And so there are a variety of ways that these cases can come to light, along with the fact that when they're unsealed, oftentimes there is a statement by the company that they are the target of an investigation. And occasionally, although not always, the DOJ will make an announcement as well. So we applied the methodology that I discussed above to 16 publicly traded companies that have resolved matters in the last five years, and the findings were pretty staggering. On average, the share prices for those stocks had risen 45% in the two years preceding the disclosure event. Then the share prices dropped 25% between the disclosure of the investigation and the resolution. And then the share prices bounce back post-resolution by approximately 23%. Then as a control, we measured the share prices against the S&P 500. And while the company stocks were dropping by that 25%, the S&P was rising by 56%. So while these particular companies and their share prices are falling pretty substantially, overall, the, the market index is going up significantly. So that's kind of, it seems like it's magnifying the significance of the investigations of these companies. That's exactly right. I mean, one concern that we had was maybe these companies, because we saw time and time again, this similar trend, were just following trends in the market. But when we looked at the market and we looked at other factors that could be driving the drop in the company's share prices, we realized that there wasn't any correlation. So I think that it's pretty clear that the primary driver of these stock movements that we saw was this looming cloud of a government investigation and what could happen to the company as a result of the investigation. Great. So you looked at at 16 companies, and obviously we don't need to go into the, the details on every single one, but can we just kind of walk through an example of one of the companies and... and um how the the loss of share price and the the timing of that loss played out? Sure. Um, So one company that we looked at that's a strong example of the rise and fall of the stock price that we've been talking about is a company called Ergo. Ergo is a company that sells and dispenses hearing aids. It's throughout the United States, but it's not a massive company compared to some other healthcare companies like a Pfizer or a Merck, for example. It's not a multinational biotech company like those may be. So Ergo first disclosed that it was the target of a DOJ criminal investigation, which was an anti-kickback statute investigation related to insurance reimbursements on September 22nd, 2021. At that point, on September 22nd, 2021, So before the announcement was made, Ergo's stock was valued at $433.40. The following morning, meaning the morning after the disclosure of the investigation was made for the first time, the stock price opened at $167.40. So think about that massive drop that happened just overnight. 
And the investigation is the one thing that we could point to that happened over that 24-hour period. It was that first public disclosure of the DOJ investigation. It was not correlated to a massive drop in the stock market at that time. So now we're at September 23, 2021. Fast forward a bit, now we're at October 6, 2021. Some time has passed and the stock remains in the mid $130 range. So just to rehash where we are, the stock started before the announcement around $433. About two and a half weeks later, it's at $130. And that's when a shareholder derivative action was filed and made public. So after that, Ergo stock continued to fall until April 29th, 2022, many months later. And that's when the DOJ announced that it had reached a settlement with Ergo for $34.4 million. So Ergo has now settled for many millions of dollars to resolve the investigation, which originally triggered the drop in the stock price. The day that the settlement was announced, Ergo stock price closed at $75.60. So it had dropped from $433 before the initial investigation was announced to $75.60 after resolution. That's almost an 83% loss in value that Ergo experienced in its stock price. So it's pretty startling and it's pretty fast paced. And this drop was caused not only by the disclosure of the initial investigation, but ultimately by additional disclosures related to the investigation, the derivative action that was filed in part because of the investigation, the announcement of the settlement with the DOJ, the price of the settlement no doubt played a role. So it's just a cumulative effect that's triggered by the announcement of the DOJ investigation. So could you talk to us a little bit more about your review of these 16 companies and any thoughts or observations you had about why these types of drops in stock price happen? Certainly. And I think it's definitely worth discussing more because we see a similar pattern in a lot of these cases. You know, there are a lot of things that can contribute to the price drop that we've witnessed. As we said, it's not only the public disclosure of the criminal investigation and the ultimate settlement, but there are a bunch of different actions that can happen in between that can also alter the stock price. So in the example that I just gave of Ergo, we know that there was the derivative action filed. And we see that time and time again in a number of the cases that we looked at. After the disclosure of a false claim act or anti-kickback statute investigation, There are derivative actions brought by shareholders who are claiming that the company wasn't acting properly. And because of the company's actions, the leadership's actions, the stock price was negatively impacted. So not too surprising that those sort of cases are frequently brought. Then there are other types of actions that we saw as well. We saw shareholder actions that were based on the reputational harm that the leadership's conduct could cause the company. As you know, publicly traded companies rely on their brand name and their good name. That's their selling point a lot of the time. And so when their reputation takes a hit, 
and the government is taking action either through an investigation or is, you know, God forbid, preparing to take even punitive action through trying a case or through eventually settling, that can cause real repercussions to the company's goodwill in the market and their reputation. And that can obviously affect not only investors and their eagerness to invest in the companies, but also current investors' view on the company and their willingness to stick with the company. You know, a lot of the cause of the derivative action, it can also affect just the market price generally. The disclosure of the investigation seems like it's really the tipping point for other sorts of actions as well. We've seen instances where disgruntled current employees file lawsuits against the companies where they say that there was other misconduct going on and they seem to be emboldened by the fact that the DOJ is looking into something that could be completely separate in the DOJ's investigation. Then there's, you know, all sorts of ancillary lawsuits. There's lawsuits that could potentially be brought by financial regulators like the SEC if the company misstated, for example, its earnings or its value in its public disclosures based on the fact that it had been engaging in some sort of false claim act related conduct. So there are a ton of ancillary effects that can cause harm to a company simply based on the public disclosure of a false claim act or anti-kickback statute investigation. And this creates a cloud that implicates the entire business model. It implicates the company's leadership, as we discussed. It implicates the company's profits to date, as we discussed, and it could implicate their earnings and they might have to reissue financial statements, which obviously can have a negative effect on the company's stock price. But it can also implicate the business's ability to do business in the market generally going forward. As we discussed, shareholders and hedge funds and others bake into their analysis of the worth of a company. The fact that the company either could not exist anymore, depending on the settlement with the government, or, and this often leads to the demise of a company, a company could be ordered or told that they can no longer participate in Medicare or Medicaid, which would cause massive earnings loss of the company and could easily cause it to fold. And are there other impacts that you weren't able to quantify through this study? Our analysis could only be of the numbers. We talk about these ancillary harms like the reputational harms and harms to the leadership based on its current shareholders and employees but we can't quantify that. So that really, while we know that's likely going on in the background, and we sometimes see the fact that different types of cases are brought because of those effects, we weren't able to quantify them. So that's really not accounted for in the numbers that we put into the article. And I will also say that to my knowledge, none of the companies that we write about in the article were excluded from participating in Medicare and Medicaid after the investigation were settled. So that sort of really significant long-term harm did not occur in these cases. The other limitation is that we only looked at publicly traded companies. Obviously, these sorts of cases can also be brought against 
privately held companies and have similar negative effects on those companies. But we didn't look at those. We wanted to be sure that we could track the public share price of the company. And, you know, I think another aspect that we didn't look into too much, but was sort of evident by what we looked at is the way that these cases can affect larger companies versus smaller companies. You know, the larger companies have capital on hand, they have a number of different products, they have market support and goodwill, and usually a lot of history as a market actor, so that the disclosure of a DOJ investigation into a particular act might not have such a massive effect on the company itself. But for a smaller company, and especially for a company that's just starting out in the industry, it can implicate not only everyone in the company, but it can essentially wipe out all of the company's earnings and, and future profits. So I think that it's worth noting that there can be a disproportionate effect of these investigations on larger and smaller healthcare companies. And so to close this out here, Rebecca, what's the key takeaway for healthcare companies who might be listening to this? It's a good question. I think the biggest thing a company can do is establish really strong internal controls and strong compliance programs that can, to the greatest degree possible, keep these sort of investigations away. As we talked about, merely the announcement of an investigation can cause reputational and pecuniary damage to companies. So investing in best practices, investing in strong compliance programs and in compliance personnel, putting safeguards in place so that behaviors that might raise suspicion among employees and can result in key TAM actions or that could raise suspicions in the government are identified and curtailed. And if they're not curtailed, because as we know, not every company is perfect, then I don't think there can be enough said for identifying and remediating when there is an issue. And we see that becoming increasingly important every day because the DOJ continuously is releasing information on how coming forward with information being uh, you know, self-identifying misconduct in a company and remediating even before the misconduct is of interest to the DOJ can have a positive effect on the sort of result that the DOJ is looking at, not only in terms of the reputational result to the company, but actually taken into account by the DOJ in terms of them calculating what sort of pecuniary damage they're seeking from the companies. I think that having strong compliance programs and having strong compliance folks internally is really important. So what does that look like? I think it's different for different sized companies, smaller healthcare companies and startups. That's those that are, you know, just getting off the ground. I think the re recommendation is to invest early in compliance practices and to get strong compliance personnel in place so that from day one, the company has a history of doing things well by the books so that they can point to that if and when the DOJ looks at any conduct. And I think for larger companies that are already better established, I think that there should be an emphasis on making sure that best practices and 
you know, support for folks being good actors is infused throughout the entire company and not just a parent company. You know, we know that a lot of larger pharmaceutical companies and healthcare companies have subsidiaries, they have different business units, and they need to make sure that these best compliance practices are occurring in all of these units, not just in the parent company. You know, we see that sometimes a large parent company, their name can be dragged through the press negatively based on an investigation into conduct that was done in a tiny arm of the company. So making sure that everyone is trained on best practices is really important. And making sure that there's an environment where folks can raise concerns about the conduct that is occurring within the companies, that employees feel safe and comfortable raising concerns anonymously or not, so that internal controls and internal compliance programs can identify potential misconduct before it becomes a larger issue. And as I discussed earlier, maybe even front it, bring it to the DOJ and say, look, we've identified this issue. Here's what we're doing to work on it. And then you can start a conversation with the DOJ on a much more positive note that way. Great. Well, thank you for joining us on today's episode, Rebecca. Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My is a podcast brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash healthcare podcast.